How's it going, everyone? This is Jason Navarro. You're listening to Tongues Out Podcast. And let's just jump right into today's subject, where we just talk more about nothing to do with the presidential election, because we all know how that's going to go for the next week. There's absolutely no sense in stressing out or talking about it. And even then, I don't know why I said presidential election, because it is election day. Because we need to stop putting so much relevance and importance behind um, presidents. But on that note, uh, there's something that I found very interesting. So every state, so let's talk about some uh, some big things that some states uh, passed. And uh, the two that hit me the most that I would love to talk about is, um, and we're talking about amendments that were passed by state legislation. This has nothing to do with my state of Nevada. Ours was kind of boring this year. Um, uh, some important stuff, but nothing like, like this stuff. And so we'll first start with Oregon. So Oregon did two things that I think is pretty awesome. First, they are trying the Scandinavian approach to managing drug control and managing, um, Uh, essentially uh, changing the perspective on how to get rid of and minimize the effects that drugs have on society. And so for the longest time, for 30 years plus, America's been on this um, agenda of just essentially declaring war on drugs. Everyone hears this term all the time, war on drugs, war on drugs, DEA, we're going to go after the criminals. We're going to go after the traffickers. We're going to go after the users. We're going to go after the dealers. We're going to go after all these people, and we're going to lock them all up. Well, essentially, that's been going on for 30 years. And if anything, if you look at the graph of the amount of drugs that um, that is used by the average American, that chart just it, it goes up. And I'm probably going to have a lot of DEA people and and, and uh, people that are against what I'm about to talk about claim that there's still some level of impact that these organizations are making, but honestly, they're not. If you look, uh, drug cartels exist, exist because of the war on drugs. Essentially, when you criminalize the aspect of, of when you when you treat drug usage as a criminal offense versus a... Um, as a mental or or psychological um, form of treatment, where essentially it's the same way that you would treat any kind of person that's going through any form of addiction, throwing them in jail is the last thing you want to do because when they come out, they're probably going to go back to that way of living and maybe do more harm to society than than good. So it's better to to target the aspect of the addiction itself and try to get them off of that. And I know a lot of individuals that I, I've i seen be very addicted to something like less, as simple as alcohol and go through the necessary steps and now have lived a phenomenal sober life. I actually have a lot of friends that are in that category that are, are super proud and super happy about where they're at now in life because they took this approach about targeting more the addiction than just being locked up in jail. Because essentially Nevada has a system where you have X amount of attempts and then if you don't get those attempts uh if you don't learn after so many kind of freebies you're gonna get locked up for a while 
And so uh, when people are on that, I've seen a lot of people that I know that are at that very last point where if they make one more fuck up, they're pretty much going to be locked up for quite, quite a good amount of time. And so instead of taking that risk and going into jail, knowing that that's not going to do anything beneficial for them, they go and target the addiction itself and they come out better people. And every single person I know that does this kind of approach where they're targeting their addiction come out to be better. So now in Oregon, they've essentially decriminalized all aspects of drug usage. So if you get caught with any level of drug, you will not get thrown into jail. Essentially what you'll do is you'll get fined. I think it's a hundred dollars. Um, now if you're trafficking or something of nature, I think that's different, but if you're a user, right, if you have a, just a using amount on you, you'll get fined a hundred dollars or you'll have to, uh, enroll or volunteer yourself into a drug addiction program. And essentially if you can make it through that program, you're good to go. You don't have to come out of pocket for that fine, which a hundred dollars isn't much. And they didn't want to make it away. Uh, it's it, but it's something, if you keep getting caught having to pay a fine, eventually it's going to navigate someone towards targeting this addiction, which is the idea. It'll help with the jail systems. Because if you look at America, America is the number one country, I think in the world, when it comes to the amount of people that we lock up in jail. And I think, a vast majority, almost two-thirds of the people that are locked up in jail are in there for some kind of drug offense. And so we have an overcrowded jail system. That in itself is not healthy. It's definitely not conducive right now during the pandemic. And so kudos to them for taking this approach because a lot of studies have been done in Scandinavia about this, and they've done a phenomenal job, and they've seen huge downward trends in the amount of usage on on uh, drugs and more public education, more people essentially feeling good about this approach to get away from what they're doing in the first place. Whereas in today's culture and society, we, we frown upon people that go through some level of addiction. And the, and the funny thing is, is that we at least know either ourselves or someone relatively close in our family that is somewhat addicted to something, an opioid or as some kind of hard narcotic or alcohol or cigarettes or something of that nature. And so for for those people, you would never look down on them. They're your loved ones. Uh, you might be judgmental for a bit, but then you kind of empathize with them when you see how difficult their life is because of this addiction. And so you want to help them, and you know that the best way to help them is to target this addiction. And so I think that's a great approach that Oregon's taken. So that's the first one. And another one coming out of that same state was essentially legalizing psychedelic mushrooms, which I think is a mind blower. I did not think it was going to happen this soon. And I think that's going to be, I think that is going to be, I think the cannabis industry is going to be very afraid of that becoming a legalized thing. And the alcohol industry as well is going to be screwed because essentially Psychedelic mushrooms are safe to consume if you take the right amount and you don't um, you don't overdo it. I've out of all the drugs I've ever done in my life, psychedelics are some of the best experiences you'll ever have. Now, again, they're only for certain types of individuals. If you're coping with uh, depression or if you're coping with any kind of negative things in your life, you should not take any level of psychedelic. They might exasperate those those issues in your life. 
I tend to live a very positive life. So every time I've had a psychedelic experience, I've had some awesome trips uh, and they allow someone like myself who's very analytical to get a more creative and, and more out body level of experience with it's just, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to be honest. It's almost like lucid dreaming. When I was talking about that three days ago in my podcast, it's like lucid dreaming, but while you're awake and it is so awesome, you don't have full control. You don't have control over what you're seeing, but you do to some degree, but the stuff that you see really is mind blowing. It really, it, it can really open your mind about your presence in this universe. And I envy individuals that are able to take um, micro dosage. So micro dosage is essentially taking enough to kind of get a, 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 the cool thing about psychedelic mushrooms. I didn't notice until a year ago that I could take a, a, a micro dosage amount and that gives me almost the same kind of feeling as if I were to smoke uh, like cannabis uh, which was pretty cool. And so I've done some micro dosage, uh, and it's, it's really cool. It's a really great way to kind of, uh, go about your day, really uplifting of a perspective. It's like I said, it's almost like consuming cannabis, but it's, it's really different. It's really interesting, but, um, definitely would not recommend. And I, I definitely envy individuals. I kind of go their entire lives trying different experiences on psychedelic mushrooms. I think that's so cool. There have been countless scenarios and scenes where I know if I was on a psychedelic, oh my God, the experience would be amazing. So uh, being a parent that's been sober and literally in the last year only having one beer, uh, scratch that, two beers. Actually, after I was done doing that podcast, I tried another one, but it's, I didn't even finish it. Um but, uh, which is just crazy for me. But if I ever find an opportunity where I'm comfortable, my daughter's asleep, I know that I'm, uh, I'm not going to be needed. Uh, I'm not going to need to be aware for a good six hours at night. Sign me up. I'm definitely going to go back into doing them. I, I really think they're awesome. And, I, and a round of applause to Oregon for, for doing that. I think that's awesome. Super great. And then the second part of this podcast, I want to talk about my home state of Florida. Um, Florida, I have many things to say about you. Uh, most of the time, they're not positive. You'll have to excuse that. I'm. It's just from my personal perspective, I don't, I don't think the state really understands their presence and the, the difficulties that the average person living there is dealing with. And they think that one way of well we're not going to talk about that we're, we're not going to talk politics one of the amendments that florida passed i did not think would ever pass in a state like florida definitely not in a million years was the they passed um an amendment increasing minimum wage from i believe it was like 825 an hour to $15 an hour. Essentially, starting next year, it's going to go to $10. And then every year after that, until 2026, it's going to increase by a dollar, going up to $15 by 2026. And I th- and then after that, they, the rate will move depending on the level of inflation. And again, super happy that Floridians passed that. The fact that I made it on the ballot is pretty awesome. 
And I just learned uh, today, actually, that the person that really spearheaded that and invested a lot into that is a, a very popular attorney. No one's really going to know about this unless they're listening from Florida. But John Morgan from Morgan & Morgan uh, Attorney, um, they he essentially was the one that spearheaded this and got it on the ballot. So uh, he claimed to have spent $5 million of his own dollars to kind of get this going and get, uh, you know, uh, advertising done for this and to push the narrative. But I think it's awesome. But the reason why I want to talk about this is because it touches on a point that I just, it, it really boggles my mind that some people don't understand. I saw on Facebook, I don't use Facebook on my, on my app on my phone, but I do, um, when I have free time, go on it via the browser on my cell phone. So I, I rarely look at it because of the fact that I have to go through multiple steps to access it. And so uh, I'm very happy at the fact that I haven't gone back to using uh, uh, social media as I used to. But um, essentially on uh, uh, on Facebook, I saw a lot of negative perspective on this $15 increase, which um, I, I saw, I, I'll think of one woman that I know uh, that's my age that I went to school with. She's a small business owner and she was talking negative about the whole increase in the rate of $15 an hour. And a lot of people on her comments agreed with her perspective. I think it's a very conservative aligning perspective. And I did see some people bring up some valid points and I just wanted to add my two cents into it. And this is the narrative that I don't understand, right? So People have this issue that they think that, oh, no, now cheap labor is going to be worth twice as much. It's going to cost us twice as much money to pay them. And what are we going to do? And I have two issues with that. First, why are you only pursuing cheap work? Like, unless you are just getting off the ground, and if that's your story, really shouldn't be investing into employees anyways. You probably should be managing your business on your own and grow to a level where you can comfortably hire someone when the time is needed and you need that. But most people that start a business don't really require having more workers unless they have like a massive endeavor that they're taking on. And already that kind of endeavor should be generating you a level of profit that can justify my point that I'm about to get to, which is I never understood why people are so fixated on cheap labor and and uneducated, um, non-skilled workers. Look, we should all be pursuing and motivating individuals to become either educated or or a skill-based worker. And the way that you're going to do that is by increasing minimum wage. Because what this is going to do is now it's going to force companies to look at their worker. Uh, sadly, this is going to be the thing that happens, but I think that in, in the long run, this is also very beneficial. You'll have companies look at their staff and be like, look, this person's clearly not worth $15 an hour. And they'll, they'll let you go, right? If you're not worth the $15 an hour, they'll let you go. This is if a company is doing this properly. Uh, companies can't abuse this, and, and I'm no one saying that that's not going to happen. But if a company really relies on an individual, there are a lot of small businesses that have individuals that they rely on a lot. And to retrain and go through all of that, can, it, it's very costly as well. And so you look at the numbers and you, you tell yourself, is it worth 
going through the process of rehiring someone, going watching the slow productivity until they learn what, where this person was at currently. And you weigh those options, right? That's what you should do as a business owner or a boss or a manager is weigh those options. And if clearly this individual is not worth it, even after the fact, and you know that the risk that you're going to take with hiring a new person to fill that spot, that they'll be more productive uh, or or worth $15 an hour at least, then yeah, you'll let that person go. And then what you're doing is essentially when you let that person go, they're going to get let go from many organizations until they finally realize I need to specialize and become a better worker. And if they don't, look, they'll get weeded out by the system and then they'll be a welfare individual. And sadly, that will be a thing. But that's a thing that exists now. That's not something that it's going to disappear with our current system of, of, of wage. And so even if you erase minimum wage, there's always going to be people that are living off of the welfare system. And you just cannot fix that unless you completely eliminate welfare. But then you better watch out for the increased level of crime in your community at that point, right? So there has to be a balance to these things. And so when you increase minimum wage, all you're actually doing is accelerating how quickly people become skilled workers. And now when someone becomes skilled, now bringing them on board and paying them 15 bucks an hour might actually be beneficial to you as an organization because this person's going to be that much more productive and generate more wealth for you as well. It's my first take on it. My second take on this is the fact that I never understood when businesses talk about, look, when you have to pay other people livable wages, like $15 an hour, other businesses are having to do that as well. And the issue that we have in society, I looked at the statistic. I I had to verify it to make sure that before I brought this up, I wanted to make sure the numbers. Over the course of the last 30 years, right, America has been on a trajectory where if you look at the the income um, thresholds of the average household, uh, you have your low class, middle class, and, and and upper to high class. High class is like the the one percenters. Upper class is like your um, almost there's to high class. Your middle class, everyone knows what that is. Essentially, most of the people listening to this are probably middle class. And then the people at the very bottom, the low uh, uh, low class. Uh, or that's not the term I'm, I'm looking for. It's not low class. Uh, is it low class? Uh, it might be. That doesn't sound right. That sounds horrible. Essentially, individuals that just are making less than $35,000 a year are in that bottom threshold, right? Um, and so you have the bottom end of the spectrum, you have the middle, you have the upper, and then you have the high. And if you account for the last 30 years in accounting for inflation, you see that there has been a shift of the numbers where the essentially, and it's coming from the middle class, the middle class kind of getting stretched thin where you see a uh, elevation of about 10% in all different directions. You see the uh, high class has gone from like being only like 1% to now they're about like 10% of society. You see the upper class go from like, I think the, the number was like from like 15% to like now they're about sitting on 25%. You see the middle class that was sitting at a comfortable 65% 30 years ago to now to like 52% of the population's middle class. 
And then you see the low, uh, the lower income individuals, you saw that they were sitting at around 15%. Now they're accounting for about 23%. And so you're seeing a 10% shift from above, uh, above middle class, a 10% shift to, to becoming more, um, and then a 10% shift from middle class down away to lower income, right? So you're getting, you're starting to see this trend of, of inequalities where essentially the middle class kind of uh, goes against and combats this idea of income inequality because if you have the vast majority of Americans in the middle class and the vast majority needs to be like, you know, 60, 65%, then that's good. It's not perfect, but it's good. But that's not where we're at now. It's half. Half of Americans are in the middle class. The other half are either upper class or and and that's a lower half, or the other half is in the in the lower income threshold. And when you see that divide and you see that that's the trajectory that this is going, look, every single year you're starting to see that it's more pro-business, more pro-business, more pro-business, right? Employers have benefited from the system for the last 30 years on lower tax rates and a lot of different things to help motivate business. The, the two points I'm about to make on, on this secondary note, sorry, so the, this will be like one, two, and an A, B of the two, right? My A first is employers have benefited for the last 30 years on a system benefiting businesses. And you could argue even longer than that technically. You would probably argue since the 1940s or 1960s, it's been like that. So over 50 years. But let's just say the last 30 years, right? We need to give back. We need to kind of give back to the workers, right? People have benefited from the system long enough. They need to start giving back. If you just got into it at the end, I'm sorry you figured it out now. That sucks for you. But the system needs to shift. Just like it sucked for the workers and it's been sucking for the workers up to this point and it sucked for the those individuals that saw that paradigm shift, this paradigm shift, yeah, might suck for you uh, small business owners, but it's not ultimately. And that's going to lead into my second point. But still sticking on this first point, this needs to shift back because there are people legitimately, a vast majority of Americans, especially because of this pandemic, that are living below their below what their necessities are and are eventually going to have to go bankrupt. And this is a reality that we live in because of this pandemic where people are only having enough money, if that, to pay for rent, mortgage, uh, food, and some essential bills like maybe a vehicle um, and cell phone and internet because those are definitely, in, in this country at least, a necessity. Public transportation is a, 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 atrocious in a majority of the country, and you can't get a job without the internet. I mean, most uh, jobs require you to do your resumes online. You can go to a library, you can kind of get around it, but that's such a that's so inconvenient. I mean, if you're not that person, you shouldn't be like. If you're not going through that yourself, you shouldn't really be like, "Oh, you can do this," right? If you like I hate when people do that. It's like be empathetic to understanding like this is a difficult scenario for a lot of people. And so um, giving these people uh, 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 more money to now live above their means in a sense that like I have enough money to pay for their bills, their necessities and have a little bit of money left over. 
you know what that little bit of money left over is going to do? And that's going to go to my B point on the secondary point is that that little bit money that's left over now is going to come back to you, the business owner, where essentially your foot traffic that you had initially was good. Maybe you'll argue it was good, but it can always get better, right? You could always have more consumers buying your products. You could have more consumers using your services. And so when more and more people have more and more money that they can spend, that money is going to essentially come back into your business. And there's been a lot of business models that have shown that. I think Australia, I saw one of the people on there uh, brought up the fact that they had recently moved to Australia like 10 years ago. And they said that Australia implemented a system like this. And a lot of people were hesitant at the time. A lot of small businesses and business owners were really upset about it. But then they've seen an upward trend of of income generated in the in the economy out there and that's because more and more people have more money to pump into the system right and then you get these people out of a shitty situations that kind of perpetuates crime drugs uh all the stigmas that we don't need in society right i mean who wants to live who wants to feel unsafe when they leave their house no one wants that but the more and more that we do this inequality, eventually that's what's going to happen. You could just look at other countries to see what happens when you do that. And so this ultimately is beneficial in all aspects. Look, I'm, am I saying an increase in minimum wage is going to minimize your crime in your area and be the, uh, need all be all for your area? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying instead of thinking about how it's affecting me, Think about how it's affecting the system in general and how that system that you're also a part of is going to benefit from that as well. Uh, if a lot of people have arguments against this, please, I would love to see it. Um, some arguments are like the cost of living is going to go up and it's just going to follow that increase in minimum wage. So you're not really going to see that much of a benefit. And you could argue that that's true, but that takes time for that to happen. It's not like, real estate value goes up immediately after minimum wage increases. It's kind of, it's like a five years afterwards. So that gives people enough time to at least prepare for those things. But, um, and that's why hopefully the system increases with inflation as well after the $15. But those are my two cents I want to talk about today. Uh, a lot of great amendments that were passed all over four states legalized cannabis, which I, I thought was great. Uh, but Oregon definitely takes the notch here on decriminalizing and legalizing uh, psychedelic mushrooms. And then Florida, good job on the 15 bucks an hour. Did not see that happening. I, I mean, Nevada doesn't even have that. Nevada's a liberal state compared to Florida. Um, so, yeah, that's a, one, in, one of very few compliments to my home state, but uh, I always like to be surprised. But anyways... Thank you guys so much for listening to today's podcast and I'll catch you guys all manana. Peace.